God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for, Lord, just a chance to look at your word in an unhurried fashion. And God, we so need your word to be what it promises, that it is a lamp unto our feet, that it is a light that shines in darkness. God, we need that so much because we know the, the culture in which we live in, there is confusion and even uh, a rejection of what you have to say as it relates to biblical manhood and womanhood. And so, God, I pray that you would give us clarity here over the next couple of moments as we look at what you have to say. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be open, that you'd help us to receive what you have. And God, I pray for uh, myself that you'd help me to be clear. Lord, help me to be um, one that preaches with compassion and grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in case you weren't here last week, today is week two of a four-week sermon series uh, on biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, And we are looking at what the Bible has to say about gender roles and gender identity and what that means as it relates to singleness, marriage, and life within the church. And so last week, we started from really the beginning in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, and we just wanted to lay kind of the blueprint for flourishment as we see in Genesis 1. We really wanted to see what is God's vision and purpose uh, for creating male and female. And so last week, we looked at how God created male and female in the image of God. And from that, we talked about three implications. We said because male and female have been created in God's image, we have equal dignity, we have specific distinction, and we all have a duty or a job to do. We have purpose. And so today, we're going to kind of take another step in kind of laying a foundation of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, But before we do that, I I just want to say from the beginning here that I understand very well that the position that we're taking as a church is very unpopular in our day. I feel that. I, I realize that. But please hear my heart as we walk through this sermon series. I'm not trying to make a political statement each and every week. Okay, I'm not trying to use the pulpit to wave the flag of a particular party. I don't think the pulpit should be used in that way. I think this topic is not a red issue or a blue issue politically. This is a Bible issue. This is a moral issue that the church uh, needs to speak into. So as we walk through this, I hope you're not picking up of, yeah, you know, here's his agenda politically, or that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to walk through Scripture and just lay out for us what I think God has to say and the implications of that as we live um, this out. But as we get into this, I do want to emphasize the fact that the sense of urgency and having biblical clarity about this topic cannot be overstated. Like you feel this and I feel this, but the, the accelerated speed that our culture has developed as it relates to um, creating this gender fluid, gender interchangeability as the default mindset is astounding. Like the, the normalization of, of having kind of this gender fluid, gender interchangeability as becoming more and more kind of accepted in our culture, it, it has the ability to impact the church in ways that we need to become more aware of. Like that normalization that we see in culture all around us has the ability for us within the church to become more tolerant of it and more accepting of it. Like you might have a view about gender roles that 
that matches up with the Bible. I hope that you do. That's why we're in this sermon series. But because gender fluidity is all around us, I mean, it's everywhere we look, that has the ability for us to become less and less alarmed at it when we see it and for us to become actually more okay with it. And we see this in all kinds of issues, not just uh, gender roles. We see this in, in issues throughout culture. And so there's kind of a, a sense of urgency within the sermon series that I hope that you're, you're picking up on. And then furthermore, this issue of biblical manhood and womanhood, it connects to every issue in our lives. Like this issue, when you apply it biblically, it speaks into how to use your gifts in this community, what it means to be a good spouse, what it means to be a good parent, how do you raise boys, how do you raise girls, what your manhood is for, what your womanhood is for. It has all kinds of implications for how we live our lives on a practical basis. In fact, I would probably go as far as to say that almost every issue in our lives could be stemmed back to a misapplication of this topic as it relates to manhood and womanhood. And so last week we laid a foundation. Today we're just going to add another layer to how we think about gender role and gender identity. And then the last two weeks in the series we'll get into kind of specific um, applications. So um, last week one of the main points was talking about how God has created specific distinction and differences within uh, men and women, even though they're equal in value. And the question I want us to consider this morning is what does that actually look like? Like, what does that look like even on the ground? How are we to make sense of the distinctions that we see between men and women? And just to be honest with you, like, the more specific you get in trying to answer that question, the harder that it is. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because we've got, we've got biblical principles that we are called to use wisdom and apply in a particular setting and time. And so when you think about that, what the Bible has to say, here are some principles, and when we try to live that out in 2019, that's going to look different than in 1950 or in the first century or in the 1500s. And so I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that as we talk about gender role and identity, there is a spectrum that we see even within the church over the last uh, several hundred years, okay? Uh, and so before we get into the weeds here, I want us to um, maybe take a step back and just for us to consider four views or four categories on gender roles, okay? Th this is what I think, you know, culture, even within the church, uh, believes, even within, within the spectrum of gender role and identity. And so I'm going to walk through uh, these four views and basically unpack what you see behind me this has been um, developed by a pastor named Guy Mason, um, who kind of talks about gender roles within the church, within these four main categories. And he talks about these four main categories that within each category, there are different camps. There are almost different spectrums within each of these four. So not all feminists believe the same thing. Uh, not all complementarians believe the same thing. There are even differences within them. Um, in addition, um, let me go back to that so you guys have time to write. In addition, I think that there are um, positives, however insufficient that they are, there are positives in each of these four camps, okay? So I'm going to try to be um, as gracious as possible as I unpack each of these four, um, just so that we have clarity about these categories, and as you engage with culture and other people, you kind of know what they're talking about, and then I'll lay out the position of, of our church. Okay, so let's talk about feminism first. Feminism 
um, basically seeks to defend equal rights for women in all spheres of life, okay, politically, economically, socially, spiritually, and that's a good thing. Like, that is a, a right thing, but w- within feminism, um, most of them take it a step further and they perceive any type of masculinity with skepticism, fear, and even anger. Any type of, of male in leadership or in authority, there, there's this sense in which that this is going to lead to oppression and abuse. And within feminism, most of them do not even believe in the Bible, and, and that's largely because the Bible is written by a bunch of men who wrote it in order to protect the power of men. And so they're not even going to really engage with it as a whole, generally speaking. So feminists are trying to erase all distinctions between men and women and even suppress men in some ways because of the abuse and the oppression that they've experienced over the years. Basically, we don't need men. We're good on our own. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, who I quoted last week, talks about feminists this way. He says that the utopia envisioned by ideological feminists would be a world free from any concern for gender, a world where masculinity, femininity are erased as antiquated notions, and an age in which the categories of male and female are malleable and negotiable. Okay, so understand this position that for them, it's, it's not just that men and women are equal, It's not that they just have equal value. It's not just that men and women have interchangeable functions and and roles. And it's not only the fact that whatever men can do, women can do, but it's also whatever men can do, women can do, and they probably can do it better and without the oppression and the abuse. Okay, so that's kind of a a quick summary of of feminism. Thank you for the grace. Um, Secondly here, uh, patriarchy. This is another view kind of within uh, our society, especially within the church, holds to as it relates to gender role, gender identity. And this view believes that the family is the foundation of society led by the authority of men. And so you think about where the family goes, there goes the culture, and there goes the country. And to a large degree, that's true. That, that has some biblical principles within it. We see that throughout human history. But within this category, it can take that view to such an extreme that it views men as, ha- as having this hyper-headship, basically this type of authority for men that suppresses the gift of women and, and makes them feel inferior as if they've been created less than. Now, not all in this category, but but many of them basically hold to this position that I'll label as an over-submission. They believe that women should not only submit to their fathers, not only submit to uh, their husbands, but to every male within the church, whether or not they're leading them towards a biblical path. And how this plays out within the church, women can't lead Bible studies, women don't have voting uh, voting rights, Women are not allowed to speak publicly within the church. Basically, for women, here's the box. Do not uh, live outside of that box. They're better seen than heard. And we've seen massive amounts of evil take place within this view. Now, the third view that I'll uh, unpack here is uh, egalitarianism. Okay, we're getting kind of closer to the center here. This is 
um, similar but different than feminism. Um, They believe, like feminists, that men and women have equal worth and no distinction within the roles. So the roles are interchangeable. But egalitarianists, unlike feminists, are not as skeptical or fearful of men being in leadership as long as there are no off-limits for women. Okay, so they would be uh, very happy with men in leadership roles uh, just as long as women can lead uh, as well. And so anything a man can do, a woman can do, not just in the workplace, but also in the home and in the church. So women uh, can preach, women can be elders, women can be the spiritual leaders of their home. Now, a lot of egalitarians will argue from the Bible. They will, they will talk about how the role distinction is actually the result of the fall. That, that the, the role distinction is not established in Genesis 1 and 2. They'll even point to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28, how there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. They'll argue and point to strong female leaders throughout the Old Testament like Deborah and Esther. They'll point to leaders, female leaders within the church like Priscilla and, and many others that we see in Acts 12 and even in Philippians 4. And so I want you to know that there are godly, Bible-believing people within this category, and yet I, along with the other elders of this church, disagree with this position and, and the way that they interpret other passages of Scripture like 1 Timothy t- uh, 2 and 3, Titus 1, and 1 Corinthians 11. Now, those passages I stated earlier about Galatians 3 and even you know, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, I'll differ there on how they view that, but I will affirm and I will say yes and amen to strong female leaders within the church. Say yes and amen to the strong leaders that we see in the Old Testament, that there is a, a, a role within, uh, within the church and even within the home for women who have been gifted within leadership but that needs to be balanced out and complemented by strong male leadership, which leads to this fourth view of complementarianism. This position is what we hold here at this church, and we believe that God has created men and women with equal worth and distinct, but they are mutually dependent upon one another. So men and women have spiritual gifts, and strengths, they'll use those gifts and strengths in different ways and sometimes in different arenas. But, but I want to stress the, the mutual dependence that we have on one another that makes this distinction so incredibly beautiful. And I'll unpack that more in a moment. As I explain complementarianism, I just want to stress this again, that just like the other three categories, especially in complementarianism, there are different camps within it. So there are broad complementarians, and then there are narrow complementarians. Broad complementarians want to apply biblical complementarianism to not just uh, the the home or the church, but they want to apply that to even the workplace. They'll say women are not to work outside the home. They are not to have similar positions as men in the workplace. They can't be CEOs. And that's personally not my position. I'm more of a narrow complementarian where I want to apply biblical complementarianism wherever Scripture does. I think Scripture speaks to the home and to the church. And so uh, you can imagine um, 
the elders and the staff, we created a position on biblical complementarianism over the last year. And you can imagine how much fun that was um, because there's a spectrum and there are different opinions on how this needs to be played out. We have now posted that position paper on our website and I commend it to you. I can't possibly fit everything into one sermon or one sermon series. And so you can go on our website and find that position paper if you just want to search for it. Um, just so that you know, kind of, wh- where do the elders, where, do the, where does leadership stand on complementarianism within the church specifically? I just want to give you a taste of it. Here's the introduction to it, part of the introduction. It says, while equal in value, women and men are distinct and complementary in how they image their creator. Complementarian theology emphasizes not only the differences, but also the dependence in how both men and women need one another to fully image God. That gender complementarity within equality is God's means for ordering his world so that his image is manifested and glorified most beautifully. Okay, and that's a lot of what we've talked about in the sermon series thus far. We take that intro and then we, we basically apply it as specifically as we possibly could to be as helpful as we possibly could as far as what that looks like in the life of the church. And part of the reason why we develop this is, is not only the, the narrative that we hear in culture, but many of you within this church, many of you women who have strong leadership gifts, you've been well-gifted, you're godly, and you're saying, look, we understand where women uh, should not serve. They shouldn't be pastors. They shouldn't be preaching. But, but where can we serve and lead? Where, what is our role even within the church? And, and so we were noticing just a lack of clarity, um, basically from leadership here, from myself, about where we see uh, women thriving and flourishing and using their gifts. And so this paper will hopefully provide more clarity um, about that. And so as it relates to how this applies to biblical manhood and womanhood, um, I just want to be able to speak into that. Even if you're not married here, I want to be able to talk about um, manhood for for just a couple of moments within a a complementarian view, that we believe that men are at their best when they are living out God's beautiful design with a posture of humility and sacrifice to lovingly lead, provide, and protect. Okay, in order for complementarianism to thrive and flourish, men need to be able to live out this definition by the power of the Spirit and the power of the gospel. And we think that this is normative. Okay, this is your main role as a man, whether you're married or not, to pursue the, the roles and, and the giftings that God has given you in this way. Now, biblical womanhood, for women to be at their best, we believe that they are to live out God's beautiful design with a posture of wisdom and gentleness to willingly cultivate, support, and care for others. This is where we think that when men and women are pursuing godliness and how God has distinctly created them and their function fits in these main categories or these main hats. Now, this is not to say that women uh, can never lead. This is not to say that women do not have similar gifts as men. I'm personally married to a strong female leader. I've got two little girls that, um, man, it feels like they've got the gift of leadership And so to kind of blend this together within a complementarian way, 
admittedly takes wisdom. That again, we've got these biblical principles that this is where women thrive, this is where men thrive, and yet we need to apply these in a particular time and space, which lends itself to meaning different things in different situations. I mean, think about this for a moment, how God has built women. Like, there aren't two women that are alike. They're all different. Same with men. And so um, I find it very helpful to even think about how um, Alistair Roberts refers to manhood and womanhood as genres. Okay, this is kind of helpful for me to think through this, where you think about the political science genre and the history genre, like there's some overlap there. And yet there still remains these distinct identifiable genres. And I think the same is true within biblical manhood and womanhood. They are distinct, although there is some overlap and a spectrum within complementarianism. So look, can you still go to heaven if you don't believe in complementarianism? Yes. Do we believe that this is the view that helps men and women best flourish within God's beautiful design? Absolutely. And I, I want to say this with the utmost seriousness and level of concern as I possibly can, that I and the rest of the elders have a very real awareness that there are men who will use this position and others in order to abuse other women and to apply their authority in a sinful and evil way. And I want to say that because, you know, speaking to hundreds of people on a Sunday, like, I know this is happening, statistically speaking. And I just want to say from the pulpit that if that is going on, number one, women, seek help immediately. And number two, just want to say that is not God's beautiful design. That is not biblical complementarianism. That is evil and sinful. And men, if you are in that type of position, you confess that and you repent of that immediately. So women, if you're in that, come talk to an elder or staff um, as soon as you possibly can. And so that's, that's our position on gender role, gender um, identity. You might be wondering, well, why? Well, why do you hold to this position? What, what does that look like? And so for, for the rest of our time here um, this morning, I want to be able to address this by supplying five foundational truths that we see in Genesis 1 through 3 alone. We're not even going to get to the New Testament today. But Genesis 1 through 3 alone that, that I think makes a charitable case for complementarianism. You know, we talked about last week how the Apostle Paul, even Jesus, quotes Genesis 1 through 2 on six different occasions. And yet we're going to kind of leave the New Testament over the next um, couple of weeks. So here are five truths that, that lead us to believe that complementarianism is what the Bible, I think, speaks to. Here's number one. We believe that the complementarian view is grounded in the reality of the Trinity. Grounded in the reality of the Trinity. Anybody be wondering, Chris, why are you bringing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into gender rules and gender identity? Well, I'm doing that because God did. Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man, and that word man is the generic word for mankind or, or for humanity, to make man in our image after our likeness. Now, God's not speaking to the angels here. The us there is the Trinity. And so we learn here, as we touched on last week, that God fashions male and female both in their worth and even in their role 
within the image of the Trinity. And I think this is part of why uh, the distinction here is beautiful, is because as men and women live out their distinct roles and functions, it ultimately reflects the beauty of the Trinity. And just think for a moment about the mystery of the Trinity. You've got one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because we're a Trinitarian church, we believe that each member of the Godhead are equally divine, have equal worth, equal value, and yet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles and different functions. We see this all throughout Scripture. We've seen this a lot in the Gospel of John over the last year. That the Father has authority over the Son. The Son is obeying the Father. The Son, not the Spirit, is seated at the right hand of the Father. That throughout Scripture, those roles are not interchangeable. And so for us to kind of conclude our male and female distinction because we've been created in the image of the Trinity leads us to believe that men and women are to function in this way that helps them most flourish. Now, none of us would say, none of us would look at God and say, man, God sure is chauvinistic and oppressive. We, we wouldn't say that Jesus' obedience and submission to the Father is a bad thing. We, we wouldn't say that, that submission makes him inferior. We wouldn't say that authority is automatically domineering at all. No, but we think that men and women equal worth different roles as we see within the Trinity. And I think this is part of the problem with an egalitarian or a feminist position, is that when you think about it theologically from the view of the doctrine of the Trinity, for their position being created in the image of the Trinity, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who now have interchangeable roles. And we just, we don't see that within Scripture. So number one, it's grounded in the Trinity. Number two here, we see the order of creation. The order of creation. Now this is a very simple, uh, not very profound point, but I think that it's very important nonetheless. That God created man first and then woman. Now God, God could have created Adam and Eve at the same time. He could have done that, and yet he didn't because I think there's a, a distinct order that impacts not the value of men and women, but it impacts the different roles that we see. Again, just because Adam was created first does not make him superior to Eve, but because he was created first, he has a different role and a different function. And we see this verse and this principle even reaffirmed in the New Testament. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.8 say that man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then Paul again in 1 Timothy 2 um, verses 12 and 13 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was, for, was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11 and this passage, Paul is talking about leadership within the church among men and women. And Paul is stating the case that men are called to lead. And if you notice in this passage, Paul is not grounding that principle in a cultural reality. He's not grounding that based on preference or based on family tradition. Paul is grounding this principle in the creative order in Genesis 1. This is informing us, this is telling us 
that Paul is creating a timeless principle for all people in all places. And so there's a, a theological meaning to the order of creation that Paul even applies in the pastoral epistles. Look, this wasn't random for how God created the order of men and women. The divine intent was to communicate something specific about our gender roles. Number three here, the third truth that we see in these first three chapters of Genesis is even the design of woman. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we are given important insight about the purpose of why God created woman. It says, it is not good that the man should be alone. So I will make him a helper fit. Literally, that word means suitable for him. Okay, so he creates woman, creates Eve to be this helper for Adam. It does not say that he created a a co-leader or someone who would have authority over man. But this is a helper, a a supportive, I'm going to come alongside man. And this informs, really, the foundation for how men and women are to interact with one another. I also want to point out that this is the first time in creation where God looks at something and he says, this is not good. Like, Every other day, every other thing that he created, he took a step back and said, this is good, that's good, this is good, that's good. But men being alone, that's not good. And everybody in this room said amen to that, right? Like it's not good. So that should actually create humility, men, within our own hearts and lives that we are mutually dependent upon one another, and that distinction and that reality creates this beautiful chemistry between men and women. That men, we need women in our lives because they've been gifted uh, differently and they have a different role. In fact, I found this humorous that the way that God kind of takes Adam through this process is so caring and yet is, is kind of like a mic drop moment. Like in verse 18, he tells them, look, it's not good that you're alone. I'm going to create a helper for you. And you'd expect the very next verse to say then he creates woman. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that until verse 21. And what happens in between those verses, verses 19 and 20, is that Adam tries to name the animals. Adam tries to to care for the garden. He's trying to live out his leadership and his authority and his role and then probably gets to the end of that and says, man, I cannot do this well on my own. It's almost like God allows Adam to go through this process for him to be convinced and probably for humility to be created in his own life and heart in the way that he now leads Eve. I think that's a reality in our own lives even today. Furthermore, within this design of woman, if you look at verse 23, You see that Adam is actually the one that names woman. That Adam is the one that that demonstrates kind of his authority here. And I think that's important because as you see throughout Genesis 2 and throughout the rest of Scripture, whenever you see someone naming someone else or something else, that is that person exerting authority and leadership as we've seen Adam name the animals because he had authority um, over that. Fourthly, the... Uh, fourth foundational truth is the responsibility of man. The responsibility of man. Now, who did God give the command to when he said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? 
Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God gives that command to Adam, gives it to man before woman was created, and Adam's role, his responsibility, the way that he was to lead and protect his wife Eve was to pass on that command with her and to help fulfill that command together. And yet what you see in Genesis chapter 3 is Adam failing in his leadership and in his role to protect his wife. That you see Satan through the serpent has this dialogue with Eve, excuse me, and, and Adam's like nowhere to be found until it's basically too late. That Eve falls into sin, she's deceived, Adam falls into sin right after her. And then guess what happens in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, God enters the scene here and it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Look, I think that's really important because the very first time that the creator confronts the creation about their sin, God holds the man directly accountable for his failed leadership and his failed uh, authority in protecting his wife. Now, you might be thinking, that's not fair. Like, Eve was the predominant character in that scene. Like, Adam was, was behind the scenes, precisely. Exact, that's the exact problem here, is that Adam failed to lead his wife and, and, and to protect her and say, look, sir, but you're not talking to my wife. You're not talking to her that way. Like, you're questioning the word of God and what God has said. This is actually what he said. And men, that's our role within our relationship with women, in particular with our wives, which we'll get to next week. Fifthly here, the last thing I'll point out is the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Again, we will um, talk about this more in the next couple of weeks. But when God declares the effects of sin upon men and women, the, the consequences here, there are clear differences that are based upon their distinct roles and function. Okay, the, the consequences laid out here and, and really the display of them, I think, show us the reality of the different roles between men and women. Like in Genesis 2, you see Adam, you see men having leadership, having authority, having this assignment from the Lord. And then in Genesis 3, because of the sin that was going on there, you see Adam who is passive. You see him not exercise his authority well. In Genesis 2, you see Eve, woman, who's created to be a helper, someone who is supportive. And yet because of sin, one of the consequences of that is for women to usurp that authority over man. And you see that God's design is distorted. Now, I just want you to think about this with me for a moment. Like, if male leadership, if male authority and female submission, female helping, female supporting were bad things, like if they were negative things, then wouldn't we expect in the New Testament, in Christ, in the gospel, that God would address that and even reverse that? Like, like if, if Genesis 1 through 3 was, was totally old school, if it was just, you know, this isn't relevant anymore, and Jesus comes and, he, and he's creating kind of a new people of God within the church, wouldn't you expect the New Testament to say, yeah, that, that wasn't fully true or fully real. Let's make the genders interchangeable now. Let's make genders fluid now. 
right? If, if it was negative, if it was a bad thing, but you don't see that at all in the New Testament. In fact, you see the New Testament doubling down on what Genesis 1 through 3 says in much more beautiful and profound ways because of the reality of the gospel and what's at stake now. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 5 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So Jesus and the church, that's not interchangeable, right? So the husband is leading the wife. Again, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, and wives submit to your husbands. Now we'll unpack that in the next couple of weeks because that word submission is an S word for many of us, and I just want to be able to provide clarity and talk about what it's not and what that looks like in the context um, of marriage. And so this is this is the foundation, I would say, for biblical complementarianism. There's obviously more things that we could say, but I just wanted today just to add another layer as we think about these categories and what the Bible has to say so that in the next two weeks we can have some fun with them and try to apply these biblical principles in specific and I would say in challenging ways. So I'm looking forward to the next couple um, of weeks in this series. Now, before I close today, I do want to try to apply biblical manhood, even complementarianism, um, to those who are single, and then to a little bit of what this looks like in the life of our church. And so if you're single um, here this morning, man, men and women, I want to give you just three points of encouragement and even a little bit of a challenge today. If you're single today, uh, number one, I want to encourage you and to exhort you to pursue godliness with all that you are and to cultivate a contentment in Christ. Like when you get up in the morning, like that is your assignment is to be as godly as possible, to create these godly habits in your life that will serve you well for years to come. For you to identify what gifts the Lord has given you and how to apply that in your particular community to, I want to encourage you to wage war against sin. Also want to even warn you to not view marriage as something that's going to automatically fix your issues. That for all the married people in this room, we know all too well that marriage doesn't fix your issues, it compounds your issues. And so if you're single, don't view marriage as something that's going to be kind of your, your savior, but, but marriage actually becomes a harder and a better realm of your sanctification. So just to encourage you to, to pursue godliness. Secondly, I want to encourage you to resist the cultural mold. That, that the messaging to singles in our culture, especially if you're younger, is to resist growing up, right? Resist responsibility, resist kind of preparing yourself for the next stage in your life, whatever that might be. And the, and the, the message is to live for yourself, like you're single, you've got all the time, you've got all the energy, like pour into you. Find out like who you are and just invest in you. It's kind of this me-centered type of living. Resist that and spend your life and your energy and your time in things that will matter for all of eternity. And look, I just want to say to, to, to men in this room, if you're single, uh, unless you have the gift of singleness, for the sake of missions and ministry, you should be preparing yourself to be as godly as possible, thinking about a potential spouse. Like, don't be passive in that. 
Like you want to be kind of uh, on the forefront of your mind praying about that because marriage is a gift that God has given you or given us. And at the same time, marriage is not something that completes you. Marriage doesn't define your worth, but it is a wonderful gift that God has given us in order to live out the image of God in a way in which we most flourish. And women, single women, to that end, don't settle. Do not settle for individuals that are males that act more like boys than men right? Like you want that bar, you want that standard to be as high as possible. You want a godly man who loves Jesus and who takes the word of God seriously. Do not settle, even though the subculture message within Christianity is you don't have purpose unless you're married. Resist that. Find your worth in Jesus. And then thirdly here is to find a mentor. Like I hear from singles in our church, man, we're battling loneliness, Loneliness might be the biggest challenge. It's what I'm hearing. And so uh, find community, find someone to disciple you, find a small group where you can, you can express those struggles and those issues and you have people pouring into you. Don't run to Netflix to, to, to kind of, you know, medicate yourself with that loneliness, but find community here in the church. And look, I just want to say, like the singles in our church and married, I, married people, I don't know if you know this, but we have some of the best singles in our church. Like we have singles who are godly, who are gifted, who are saying we want to invest our time and energy into the local church and not waste the season of our life. And so for singles, like we are so thankful for you. Like we would not be the church that we are today without you. And so I I would view much, many of our singles as, as godly and mature. And so at the same time, for us who are married, like we need to make sure that we are making that first step, initiating with the singles in our church, having them over into our home because they need to see what married life looks like, that, that it's, not, um, it's not like the romance novels or the chick flicks that you see on TV, that married life and parenting is, is hard. And it's, it's good for singles to see that. And so to kind of invite them into uh, your mess is a great way that we can love on them even within our church. And then the, the last thing I want to say uh, before we wrap up is, is basically how to apply uh, complementarianism to women and, and men and their roles within the church. Okay, so let me just speak about this briefly here. Again, want to direct you to that position paper on our website. But just to summarize what we've said in that paper is that we believe wholeheartedly that men and women have been gifted by the Spirit of God Uh, and are designed to equip, empower, and edify the body of Christ. We believe that wholeheartedly. And and I would say this, just like I said about the singles, like when I was thinking about speaking about this and thinking about the women in our church, we have so many women who are godly and gifted, and you have poured yourself into this church, and we would not be where we are today without you. And so I just want to say to the women here, like, we need you as a church. This mutual dependence is not just something we threw in there in this paper to be politically correct. This is something we feel on a daily basis, i.e. with Faith Hamer leading us for worship today as Tim is on vacation. She's wonderfully gifted who she is applying her gifts in serving and edifying the body of Christ. And we would say yes and amen. Women, we need more of that within our church. 
And so what does this mean? Well, this means corporately, you're going to see women, and look, not dropping a bomb here, we're not adding anything to our position, we're doing what we've always done, but I just want to provide clarity about where we are as a church. You're going to continue to see women who read scripture on Sunday morning from the stage. You're going to see women pray. You're going to see women help participate in the leading of worship. You're going to see women who are um, participating on different committees. We've got women who are actually leading some of our most important ministry and service teams throughout our church. You're going to see women who are co-leading small groups, who are teaching adult Bible studies and so many other areas where women are stamping their influence and their impact on the church, and we say thank you for that. At the same time, we also see in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, is that elders and pastors are reserved for godly and qualified men to lead the church and to preach in a corporate assembly within uh, the congregation. And we see that that is grounded in the creative order of Genesis 1 and 2 and not a cultural principle that can change. And so as we close, look, I just want to state this again. There's beauty in the distinction, like the fact that men and women have these different roles that we complement each other when we come together and we serve side by side. That the gospel of grace does not erase gender distinction, gender roles, gender functions, But I think that the gospel actually opens our eyes to savor the divine design and the God-formed responsibilities. That these these are actually mechanisms that God has created in order for us to flourish, in order for our own sin and idolatry to be revealed so that we might repent and apply the gospel and for these things to become something that our culture looks at and says, yes, we see how that's for the flourishment of humanity. So this is, this is good news. This is a, I think, refreshing remedy for our current state of confusion within the world and within the church at large. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the clarity of your word. God, we thank you for, um, Lord, the fact that you have created men and women in your image. Lord, that there is incredible and intrinsic value within that. But Lord, we also thank you that there's distinction that men and women are not just different with their body parts, but even in their function and role. God, I pray that our church will be a place where women thrive, where women use their gifts, where women are encouraged and where women are valued. God, we thank you for the singles in our church as well who have invested so much of their time and energy into just this ministry. God, we pray that our church would find better ways to make sure that they're assimilated into the body of our church. And so, God, ultimately, we want the community around us to see us exercise our roles in a way that flourishes so that they might, they might be wooed into this, God. So, Lord, continue to go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.